0: I'm Kim Bremer, your host today for another edition of Bova News, keeping you up to date on the cattle industry's latest technologies, management, genetics, and more. Today we're talking about improving feed efficiency, a goal for every dairy producer. Unfortunately, it's difficult to achieve through normal management practices and even harder to really measure. Up until now, there's been no way to directly affect feed efficiency through genetics, but a new genomic selection trait called FeedSave could change just that and provide dairy producers with a way to improve feed efficiency through genomic selection. This webinar will offer insight into how the test was developed, a new commercial tool that can impact feed efficiency, and how producers can benefit from this new technology. We have a great panel today of presenters for you uh, Joel Pankowski, Dr. Kent Weigel, Juan Moreno, and Tim Clark. First up presenting today is Joel Pankowski from Arm Hammer Animal and Food Production. Dr. Joel Pankowski joined Arm Hammer as a manager of field tec- technical services in 2011 and is responsible for, for providing technical support to the field sales team, nutritionists, and dairy producers in the Eastern US and Canada. Joel received both his BS and MS degrees from the Ohio State University, and then went on to earn his PhD in dairy management from Cornell University. His areas of expertise are reproductive management and health, quantitative dairy herd data analysis, and transition cow management and nutrition. His over 20 year career has included a variety of technical and leadership roles with Monsanto Dairy Business, CPG Nutrients, Agway, Lana likes Purina Feed and Alpharma Animal Health. So with that, Joel, take it away.
1: Thanks, Kim. I really appreciate the opportunity today to talk specifically about measuring feed efficiency for more profit. <clears throat> I think before we uh, begin the conversation about how to measure feed efficiency, it's important to understand how to calculate feed efficiency. Uh, it's actually a pretty simple math calculation. That uh, you can actually do on the back of a napkin. Um, It basically looks at specifically looking at milk production, dividing that by the dry matter intake of the animal, and then you come up with an efficiency factor. So for instance we would tend to go to most dairies and want to look at energy-corrected milk as our milk production parameter. Um, That allows us to standardize feed efficiency across dairy. So that's important for nutritionists and veterinarians relative to their client base. So you can take a Jersey herd, for instance, and compare it to a Holstein herd and compare either one of those two to a crossbred herd if we use energy-corrected milk as opposed to raw volume. Um, As far as intake, we're going to specifically look at at the feed bunk managers, giving us a number where it would be uh, simply, the dry matter intake uh, per pen in this case, most likely, is going to be the feed delivered uh, minus the waybacks. And we'll talk more about how to do that uh, uh, in, in, in detail in just a second. That gives us then a, a calculation of energy corrected milk divided by dry matter intake and our, and our feed efficiency thing. Uh, our feed, I'm sorry, our feed efficiency calculation. So this takes into account the production and the dry matter intake that, that, to, of the animal. It realizes that efficiency changes by stage of lactation. So in other words, as cows are grouped either by days of milk or by reproductive status, uh, which at some point defaults to days and milk, their dietary energy t- uh, requirements change, and that feed efficiency number will change with it. And there's also different adjustment factors we can use if we want to get more intricate with the calculation. For instance, most of the ration software uh, that these nutritionists would use on farm, um, the majority of the dynamic models would calculate adjustment factors to help better refine the calculation relative to the animal's environment. Uh, For instance, relative humidity, temperature on a given day, uh, and such. Our goal is to strive for improved efficiency we like to use this efficiency number as a guide it's not an absolute so it's a conversation of accuracy versus precision on any given dairy it's probably more important for the management team to be precise as opposed to strive for the actual true number Uh, we want to get numbers that represent over time specific monitoring values for that dairy, we should probably look to do this on a monthly basis at at least. Um, Measuring it consistently is very important, so we want to measure this this feed efficiency number the same way every time. Uh, We'd like to use the same milk production value every time, in other words, that energy-corrected milk uh, number would be the preferred number, Um, ideally to get a a, a more uh, precise and accurate vision of what's going on in the dairy relative to feed efficiency. We like to feed the cows and collect the feed refusals at the same time each day to take out variation relative to time of day. And then in an ideal world, and not always possible, but in an ideal world, we'd like to have the same person uh, determine specifically the refusals. Uh, what we find on most of these dairies is that the software uh, in the uh, The feeding tools, in other words, the the delivery systems that deliver the feed, the TMR wagons or trucks, those are pretty accurate and and, and really aren't impacted by human error at all. Uh, It's the refusal part of this calculation where there's opportunity for, uh, for variation due to different people calculating the actual refusal amount. So as we, as we calculate this number on a dairy and we strive for improved efficiency, what are some things we need to consider? Well, first of all, forage quality. We need to monitor forage quality, realizing that higher quality forages often move through the cow at a faster rate, whereas lower quality forages tend to move through a cow at a slower rate, and this will affect our efficiency factor. In fact, depending on the group of cows and the type of forages you feed, um, that, that diet composition can actually uh, influence that efficiency factor. Uh, and it can vary year to year based on your forage base. Um, we also wanna focus on feed ingredients that have a higher feed efficiency value. So it, it, think of it in this way. We wanna have, there, there's two primary buckets of feed efficiency type products or components in a ration. Those ingredients that would increase Uh, rumen microbial growth, Uh, they allow for additional breakdown of each pound of feed, so if we have components in the diet that would increase microbial growth, we would most likely get better use of our feeds and have a better feed efficiency opportunity. Uh, That second bucket of opportunity falls in the line of of rumen bypass type supplements, so ingredients that will go right through the rumen to the hind gut. and, and, and there are things typically that the cow can't deliver through fermentation. Those have a direct impact on feed efficiency, uh, whereby the rumen doesn't negatively impact the flow of ingredients and, and helps us with that calculation. So as we calculate feed efficiency, again, we want to use uh, guidelines for a group of cows based on their stage of lactation. Uh, I mentioned earlier the difference between accuracy and precision. We want to be precise or repeatable in our calculations and eliminating variation as opposed to striving for these benchmarks uh, to be absolute. But this is just a guideline that's pretty well established in the literature for dairy cattle, uh, regardless of breed. Um, Splitting the group into two sets. Uh, The the fresh and high cows in the first grouping, uh, we'd look at a feed efficiency factor of 1.6 or greater. Uh, That number is driven a lot by the fact that, for instance, fresh cows, they'll be mobilizing body reserves and eating less dry matter. Um, So that number, again, is not an absolute, but it's more of a target. Um, And our goal is to benchmark where we start with this program and be able to see changes over time to where we can approach this type of a a goal. Uh, The second grouping that we look at is late lactation cows. The feed efficiency number for them would be as low as 1.3. Those animals, they're not producing as much milk and uh, they tend to be regaining body weight. So their number is gonna be lower than a fresh or high cow. And again, these are just general guidelines as we move through to try to give you an idea of what the target should be. So in summary, feed efficiency is a a very good tool uh, to help us improve our, our productivity and profitability. And I guess I'd give you four things to take a look at relative to watch watchouts if you choose to be down this road and, and measure this data. First of all, be as consistent as possible to eliminate variation. We talked about having the same person, for instance, measure the refusals. We, I discussed earlier uh, the opportunity to feed the cows at the same time of day, or also collect the refusals at the same time of day. Uh, secondly, feed efficient. Fish- Efficiency values are going to vary depending on stage of lactation. Those high producing early lactation animals are going to be more efficient than the late lactation animals will be. Um, Thirdly, feeding high quality forages can directly influence feed efficiency. Uh, Again, focusing on feed ingredients of higher feed efficiency value. Those ingredients we discussed would increase microbial growth to help you get more out of your forage base and or ingredients designed to bypass the rumen and get to the hindgut directly Um, at the end of the day this this whole conversation about feed efficiency in the dairy industry is really designed around improving the efficiency of the animal and it's all about producing more milk at less cost
0: thank you so much joel we appreciate your insight today the second uh presentation that we have for you on this panel is going to come to us from dr kent weigel Uh, Dr. Weigel is from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's a professor and chair of the Department of Animal and Dairy Sciences there. He holds a research extension and teaching appointment and serves as a technical consultant for numerous companies and organizations in the dairy genetics industry. His research focuses on genetic selection and genome-guided management programs to improve the productivity, health, fertility, and feed efficiency of dairy cattle using tools such as whole genome selection, advanced reproductive technologies, crossbreeding, electronic data capture systems and artificial intelligence algorithms. Dr. Weigel has published approximately 200 peer-reviewed journal articles on various aspects of genetic improvement and management of dairy cattle and has given lectures to academic industry and producer audiences in more than 30 countries. So with that, Dr. Weigel.
2: Thanks, Kim. Uh, What I'd like to do here in the next uh, few minutes is talk a little bit about the development of genomic predictions for feed saved. And this is a topic we've been working on for close to 10 years. And by we, I mean collaborators at several universities, primarily Michigan State, uh, Iowa State, uh, Florida, and Wisconsin, but also USDA, uh, Ag Research Service, uh, Virginia Tech folks were involved some, and and also uh, Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding. So I think uh, you all understand feed is the largest expense on most dairy farms. So even small improvements can have an impact not only on finances of the farm and and reducing feed costs, but also on uh, improving the environment and uh, leaving some of the land pressure or helping land utilization. So what we're trying to do here is improve biological efficiency of the dairy cow. And one of the real challenges there is that requires individual daily intakes for very large numbers of cows. There's a lot of good research done you know, two or three decades ago on feed efficiency, but we really couldn't do anything before genomics because we didn't have the ability to go out in a progeny testing program and measure, you know, 100,000 cows every year uh, uh, as all the daughters of the new progeny test bulls uh, for individual intake for uh, a long period of time. And so it's difficult and expensive, but with genomics, it's at least feasible. So we've had a couple of um, grants, a federal grant from USDA, National Institute for Food and agriculture, and subsequently a Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding and Foundation for Food and Ag Research grant. And in these two grants, both were led by Mike Vandahar, my colleague at Michigan State, and several universities participated. Again, the, the main ones being us in Florida and Iowa State, along with the USDA. And the goal in the first one was to measure 5,000 cows, the second one another 3,600 cows to establish a reference population. And by that, I mean, these are older cows where we have, um, or lactating cows where we have genomic information. We also have individual intakes uh, for at least six weeks in mid-lactation. And from that, we can develop breeding values for feed efficiency and apply those to other animals in the population, especially young young calves that have been just uh, through genomic testing program. What we're trying to do here is maximize the amount of energy, consumed energy that's captured as milk or body tissue, and try to limit the amount that's lost as feces, gas, urine, heat um, for metabolizing feed or for maintenance uh, so that we can uh, get cows that uh, go use that gross energy that they consume to maximize the amount of milk produced and body tissue uh, that's gained. Um, And it's a little bit more complicated in dairy cattle than, than some other species where you just have to look at rate of gain versus feed intake. Here we have to also account for Uh, The cow has to stay healthy. She has to reproduce. Uh, She's gaining and losing body weight and body condition over that lactation cycle. It's a little different from a feedlot uh, situation. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, we want cows with high milk yield and low maintenance cost, and then again, capturing a high proportion of that consumed energy uh, for milk production. And so cows at uh, five or six multiples of maintenance in terms of the amount of Uh, Energy going to milk production versus the amount going to maintain their body functions um, are efficient, and we want to select among those for for those that can use that feed most efficiently. Our project uh, we focused on mid lactation because that's the stage when the cows aren't gaining and losing a lot of body weight. So the at the beginning of lactation, a lot of body condition score or body condition is being uh, used or being lost essentially. Uh, because cows are in negative energy balance at the end of lactation, it's a little easier, but still you have the, the maintenance or the growth requirements, excuse me, of the fetus. And so what we w- want to focus on is cows between 50 and 200 days in milk and try and get them for at least six weeks, um, you know, plus an adaptation period before that to learn to use the gates. And during that period, we try to measure dry matter intake, body weights, body condition scores, and then of course, milk yield. Uh, milk composition and do some feed analysis. There's a lot of uh, error error checking and missing values and that sort of thing we have to be really careful about. Um, There are times uh, when there's a a problem with the electronic gates or cows stealing feed and and so there's a lot of effort and time that goes into uh, uh, data checking but also monitoring the animals to make sure that the animals and equipment are doing what uh, they're supposed to be doing. And so at the end of the day then we try to measure or, or we do measure residual feed intake or RFI And we do that within a research station because for example, we have cows in Wisconsin under cold stress at times of the year, cows in Florida under extreme heat stress. So we do it on a contemporary group basis where that contemporary group is defined by the research farm, uh, the experiment that they're on, and then the diet. So it's much like the herd year season contemporary groups that we use for genetic evaluations of any other trait um, to try and focus on how certain families perform relative to other families within a standardized environment at a given time. And then these data are passed on to Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding to use in a genomic evaluation system. And these will be introduced uh, here in in just a few days. Um, So if we think about uh, RFI, or residual feed intake, what we're doing is we're we're comparing observed intake for an animal with her predicted intake. And that predicted intake is based on her secreted milk energy, her metabolic body weight, and then her body weight change, is she gaining or losing weight? And it's all done again on a within cohort basis. So cows standing there next to each other, eating the same diet at the same time. And cows that eat less than expected have a favorable or negative RFI. And and that's desirable, again, uh, acknowledging that we have to make sure that, that they're also staying healthy, fertile, and those sorts of things, because we don't want it to sort of confuse efficiency with poor body condition, right? Um, So when one looks at publishing these results, uh, there are some different options. Uh, Residual feed intake could be a standalone trait. It's attractive in some sense that it's independent of milk yield and body size, because that's part of the calculation. It's how much feed are they Uh, eating more or less than their contemporaries after we account for those uh, things like body size and milk yield. But it can be confusing to interpret and the reliabilities are quite low. Um, Other countries in Europe, for example, publish uh, in some cases, dry matter intake as a standalone trait. It's fairly simple to interpret how much did that cow eat on a given day on a dry matter basis. Reliabilities are higher, but but the negative of there is it's very strongly, positively correlated with milk yield and we already measure milk yield. And so the approach that we like and that CDCB is going with is feed saved. It was developed by Jenny Price and her colleagues in Australia a few years ago. It's fairly simple interpretation and it, what it does is combines two things. So residual feed intake with excess maintenance costs. So does the cow eat more or less than she's expected to based on her size and her performance. And then is she um, bigger than she needs to be to do this job, right? And and it, uh, those two things together make feed saved. It can also be extended with some assumptions to include the lactating and rearing periods and salvage value and those sorts of things um, can be incorporated into that index. So it, it does, uh, have a little bit higher reliabilities than RFI. It needs a little educational effort to explain, though, as we're doing here today. So feed saved, again, will be RFI plus a body size penalty. It will go into net merit. Body size has been in net merit for 20 years now uh, based on type traits and predicting body weight composite. And again, we include the rearing, lactating, dry periods, salvage value, calf value, and even the added housing costs of needing bigger stalls. And this will all become part of Feed Saved here uh, next week. One of the things we learned in this project is that maintenance costs are about double or even a little more than uh, double of what net merit had been charging previously for large cows. And the reliability of the body weight composite or that that piece of of Feed Saved is actually quite good, more than 75%. Um, On the other hand, the reliability of RFI is quite low, less than 20% for young calves. It's higher for cows that have been measured themselves, of course. That's based on a genomic reference population of a little over 6,000 cows to date. And we're going to keep growing that, as I'll talk about in a minute. And so feed saved is the combination of those two. The reliability on average will be about 37% for young calves. and that's much less than we're used to, right? So we'll make some mistakes, but the economic value is pretty high and there's genetic variation. The standard deviation, uh, according to some calculations by Paul Van Raiden at the USDA is about 109 pounds per lactation. This trait will favor medium sized cows that can produce milk very efficiently and it will, it will get uh, more than 20% of the weight most likely in the new net merit index in, in the next spring. So going forward, uh, the plan is to publish feed-save PTAs now, and then to put them in lifetime net merit in the next sire summary in the spring. We'll continue to measure cows and add about 750 new cows per year to the reference population. Um, We'll also at the same time do research on developing other ways to measure dry matter intake on a larger scale on commercial farms, for example, with wearable sensors, 3D cameras, Uh, machine learning algorithms, that sort of thing, Uh, CDCB, and, and also as researchers, we're working with some international partners to bring in some additional data from Canada and other countries that will be helpful. And really, going forward, we also want to understand a couple things. What do these differences in feed efficiency actually mean in terms of the physiology of the animal, immunology, rumen microbiology? Are there additional energy sinks that we should be Uh, looking at and how do we measure those and then how does this affect how is it affected by diet are there genotype by environment interactions or by genotype by diet interactions and almost certainly there are but how do we quantify those so i will stop there and, and thank you for your attention and for joining this webinar today
0: thank you kent Uh, Next on our list for presenters today is Juan Moreno. Juan is the CEO of Sexing Technologies and has been a pioneer in developing proprietary technology in semen sorting science and animal reproductive services. He received his Bachelor of Science degree in Dairy Science from The Ohio State University with advanced training in bovine reproduction, specializing in sorting and embryo transfer. ST Genetics launched their EcoFeed Index in December of 2017. EcoFeed is built around which is a moderately inheritable trait. The EcoFeed Index is an integrated approach to genetic selection developed by ST Genetics to help producers create the the next generation breeding females. The program encompasses environmental, metabolic, and genomic factors affecting dairy cattle profitability from birth until the cow leaves the farm. ST Genetics is a worldwide leader in livestock reproductive services, including sex-sorted semen, embryo production, and genomic testing. So with that, the floor is yours.
3: Well, thank you very much. Um, So we started looking, uh, our history with feed conversion, and feed efficiency goes back about 14, 15 years, in which a friend of mine uh, got interested in measuring feed conversion in beef cattle. And we had the opportunity to work with him for a number of years, and, and we saw a tremendous improvement in his genetic selection program on the beef side as a result of selecting for basically feed efficiency. So once we learned of the work that Ken and the other universities were working on on the dairy side, we got interested and we instituted a program at ST to basically do progeny testing in, in measuring feed efficiency or feed conversion. So we've, to this date now it's been uh, since 2014, when we started measuring internally in our genomic herd and also in our recipient, embryo recipient herd. Today, um, as a result of all those measurements, we eventually were able to create genomic predictions through genetic patients and now we're genomically tested by right the 260,000 females for the trade. Why is this trade important to us? Is because we are faced with two factors. One is the cost of production in the dairy, about 60 to 65 percent of the cost of the result of feeding. And number two is because of the dairies, we are under tremendous pressure from the folks in the cities as to being part of providing a sustainable healthy environment, reducing methane emissions. So sustainability is also a big factor in our desire to implement feed efficiency selection processes. So we're looking at not only the cost of the feed, the effect on the carbon footprint, but as how we can move as an industry over the next 10 or 15 years in being able to accomplish both goals so that we can also produce a very efficient product to feed the 9 billion people that are gonna be on this earth by 2050, 2045. We have a tremendous potential to be able to improve our feed efficiency because it is a moderately uh, heritable trait, a 0.21, and, but first we had to measure. So as Dr. Weigel mentioned earlier, Uh, it was important to do individual animal feed efficiency testing, uh, feed consumption, so that we can properly calculate the feed efficiency or the feed conversion of those animals. So we built a specialized facility, two facilities, one in Ohio, one in Texas, that would allow us to do those those measurements. So the facility in in Texas, in Ohio, allows us to feed feed test about 2,000 heifers a year, and our, facility, and our milking facilities allow to feed test about 1200 milking cows per year. So we're testing the animals from a very young age as, as growing heifers, because it does take us 24 months to take uh, a, a cow to milk production. So the first day she starts generating income, we already put into that animal two years of feed, worth of feed. We obviously got to measure her growth, feed efficiency, as well as her feed efficiency as a milk producing animal. So we will test the females as growing females, then we'll test them again on milking cows. Today, we, we started, like I mentioned, we've, we've been testing Holstein heifers and Jersey heifers, as were all at Holstein cows. On the Holstein heifers, we started in 2014 with Jersey's in 2015 doing measurements. Today on the Holstein we got over 450,000 data points. On the Jersey's, we got about 50,000 data points. On the hosting lactating cows, we got about 60,000 data points. We also mentioned a body weight on all those animals. Uh, on the heifers, we do it during the testing period uh, every other week. And in the milking cows, because we're measuring those cows and robot milkers, we're doing a weight, body weight on that animal every single day. Uh, we collected quite a few individual phenotypes and like I said earlier we developed a system to do progeny testing first and foremost so to this day we have progeny we've tested daughters out of 748 different Holstein bulls 91 different jersey bulls on the heifer side on the Holstein cow side we've up to about 146 different bulls all the females were genotyped and all the sires of those females were genotyped and all the dimes of all those females were genotyped and now we got a lot of bulls that got more we got about 50 hosting bulls that got more than 20 dollars in the progeny test program we got nine jersey bulls that got more than 20 dollars now we do have several bulls with more than 50 and 70 50 to 75 dollars but we've been con- continuously been making sure that we move the population genetic as the population has moved genetically since 2015 we keep on adding more and more of the higher TPI or net married animals to the next. Uh, so based on the number of animals that we have and because of the heritability of the trait that we're dealing with about 0.21 is the number of daughters that we ha- have to get progeny tested out of a bull to be able to increase the accuracy of the genetic prediction. So if we have 50 daughters on a bull and a trade of med- medium heritability of 0.2 which is the green line, we will be able to get about eighty percent reliability in that kind of progeny testing program. The less daughters we got, the less reliability. The more daughters we have on some bulls, the more the reliability. So when you have fifty daughters on a bull and it's been through a, through this type of system, we do expect with this type of trade to be reaching heritability, uh, rely, accuracy is in the level of eighty percent. Now, as we move through the years from 2014 to 2020, I've got a list of the number of females that so we're testing every year, and we've been in systematically increasing the number of females that we test, we run through the system on a yearly basis. We also make sure that we have kept a, a range in the TPI and in the net merit basis from, you know, so if you look at, for example, 2015, the lowest females that went through the program had a TPI of 1275, with the high ones having a TPI of 27, 27, 7, 66. By the time we reached 2020, we did have a female that was down in TPI at 888. She was a recip, an embryo recip that we tested, and but we did have females up in the 2864 range in TPI. So there's we've been very careful to keep a wide uh, variety of of genetic levels in the animals that we test, and both on the net merit basis and on a TPI basis. So result of all this test, all this progeny testing, we've been able to now create on RFI, residual feed intake or feed conversion, a calculation of the accuracy for each one of the bowls that we have and an accuracy for an individual animal that gets genomically tested. We chose to to rank it on a formula that we call ecofeed. And basically where the average of the population is 100. So if you're more, more feed efficient and you're above the average of the population, you're gonna be 102, 105, 110, 115. If you're below the average of the feed efficiency of the population, then your number is gonna drop below 100. That type of system easily allows us to rank the bulls and figure out whether the bull is better or worse for feed, his daughters are better or worse for feed efficiency. So in a sense, a bull that, his daughters are the average of the population, he will be at 100 and a bull that is at 110 will be bulls that are significantly higher than the average of the population. So that would be a more desirable result. A more desirable result means that the daughters out of that bull will consume significantly less feed than the daughters out of a bull that are below 100. We already spoke about the heritability of feed efficiency or eco-feed or residual feed intake, and we've calculated to be about 0.21 at this point in time. We've also looked at the correlation with the number of indexes that have been used traditional traditionally for selecting cattle genetically, dairy cattle. And the correlations that exist whether it's TPI or net merit or cheese merit, milk, fat, protein, productive live, daughter pregnancy rate or feed efficiency. Are very very low, so we we are very happy that the selection for this trait is not going to influence selection for the traits. Now it is a trait that has not been selected as in a general basis in the population, so it's also a trait in which we got the, a great ability to make quick genetic improvement. In it. Today we publish the feed the eco feed ranking or the feed conversion ranking for all the bulls of ST Genetics. We as well published all the ecofeed eco feed or feed efficiency rankings for all females that have been tested through genetic vision. So like I said earlier, there's been over a quarter of a million females already tested through genetic vision that do have an ecofeed ra- score. Dr. Albert DeBreeze of University of Florida looked at all the, 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 the values associated with ecofeed and the selection of ecofeed. And how would that relate to a net, on a net married basis um, case? So we looked in this case at a sire that is 102 for eco feed and assumed that the cow that he gets bred to will be a 100, which will be the average of the population. So theoretically, their daughter will be a 105 for parent average. If that, but because that daughter is gonna be one extra point in equal feed, she's gonna consume 0.2 pounds of feed less per day than the average of the population. If, we take, if it takes us from four months of age to 24 months of age to 23 months of age, that's roughly about 578 days of feed to take that animal before she starts milking. That means she would consume about 115 pounds less feed than the average of the population. When you do it on a dry matter basis, that will, be, that will mean about 58 pounds less feed than the average of the population. At 8 cents of dry matter cost per pound, that translates to about $4.62 on a net merit basis. That is for the, for the savings on feed on a net merit basis for a heifer that is just one point on ecofeed, better than the average of the population. But then how does that translate to a milking cow? So far to this point, the studies and the data shows that if you were to measure feed efficiency or RFI exclusively on a growing animal and compare it to a lactating animal, the correlation will be about 0.37. As we get more data in the in the time coming in the next year or two, that correlation may change. But today we, we, we're choosing to use what has been in the literature of 0.37 correlation. That means that the predicted feed efficiency or the RFI or the eco feed value for that female would, as a heifer, would correlate at a 0.37 as a lactating cow, which would mean an additional $3.79 in feed savings. So you would add the two numbers, the 462 and the 379. So in a sense, every one point of eco feed would leave on a net merit basis to a significant saving. So if we just take the net merits that stands to the net merit formula as it stands today, and we add the eco feed value to it, the rankings on the bulls would change significantly. So we got it here a slide with 28 bulls on the slide with different net merits and different levels of eco-feed and a different reliabilities. And if when you add the net merit to the eco-feed, if you look, for example, at bull number five, the net merit he would be ranked at 105 if it was just on a net merit basis. But once you add the eco-feed value, he would go up to the 32nd ranking. So it could be a significant a significant change. And why did he change that much? Because his eco feed value is 110. Now, on a net merit basis alone, he would be a 684 as the formula stands today. If you add the adjusted of the eco feed, the eco feed adjustment, which was 87 points, that would take him up from 684 to 771. So, in in so in order to make quick genetic improvement, obviously, what you want to do is select the bulls as breeding bulls. That are on the on the um, um, higher in the eco feed value, or on the tail end of the bell shaped curve. So you would try to breed bulls breeding breed bulls that are above one hundred for feed efficiency or eco feed. We got a, a study that we did on a very large herd with a population of thirty six hundred heifers, and if you started and assumed that the population that herd the average eco-feed value was 100 and they were bred to, a, all the females in that herd were bred to a bull, but the eco-feed value was 104 with a reliability and accuracy of 55. That would mean their daughters would average 102. If you then bred that bull that is 102 to a bull that was 107, then their daughters will average 104.5. Well, if you take over that population, how does that translate to money in your pocket? So the savings would be, would from four to 12 months of age, would be in the range of $22,000 to $56,000. From 12 months of age to cabin, the range could be between $33,000 and $87,000. Overall, from four months of age to, to cabin, there would be a savings somewhere between $55,000 and 143000 Why is that range between 55000 and 143000 That's because, of the accuracy of the prediction. The higher the accuracy of the prediction is, then the closer you're gonna to get to the $143,000 value. The lower the accuracy of the prediction is, the closer you're gonna to be to that $55,000. So in a sense, not only do you wanna pick bulls that are high on the eco feed on the feed efficiency value, but also if you're really interested in fa- making fascinating progress, you wanna pick up, choose bulls that have a higher accuracy level. Appreciate the time and thank you very
0: much. And last but not least on our panel today is Tim Clark. He is a dairy producer, fifth-generation dairy farmer, farming with his wife, Carolyn, and their five kids and Tim's parents. Their farm is located in Brownsburg, Chatham, Quebec, where they have various enterprises, including maple production, cash crop, custom work, and dairy production. They milk about 210 Holsteins on four Lely A4 robots. The Clarks have a keen interest in maximizing the efficiencies of how they produce milk and adopt many new technologies and tools to help them accomplish this goal. Many feeding tools are used to maximize feed efficiency and limit cost and waste. Tim has been using Ecofeed traits in their breeding program for a while and strives to have more mid-size efficient cows that last. So with that, Tim.
4: Thank you very much. Good to be with you guys here today and uh, share some of our history Uh, I want to share some of the management choices that we've made and why we made them towards feed efficiency and that the global objective of it is to really drive uh, profitability Uh, because if you don't have profitability as the farmer, uh, your banker's not happy, your wife's not happy. Nobody gets to be happy. And, um, you know, whether it's in Canada or whether it's in the US, we have to look at the different metrics that are going to drive our profitability. And uh, just want to share some of the history and some of the choices that we've made and where we're at now, and uh, our familiarity with uh, the eco feed and uh, what our vision is going forward on that. And uh, I think the management choices that we do have and that we have made uh, are all interrelated. And uh, we come out of a tie stall background going back, uh, I guess, close to 20 years now. And we moved from a tie stall herd of you know, 25, 30 cows going towards a parlor. And uh, we had good enough counselors at the time to push us on genetics, to have great genetics that were ready to transition to a freestall. Because The cows that uh, uh, work in a freestall stall um, might work in a tie stall, but tie stall cows don't generally work in freestalls. stalls. So um, going towards smaller animals, mid-sized animals, uh, great feed and legs, and all of that discussion that's been around for, for so long, and, and longevity traits, uh, very important to us. So we transitioned toward the parlor and uh, had that probably for about 15 years. And then in 2016, we transitioned towards robots. So, not so much of a huge transition, uh, still have the same freestyle barn.
0: Um,
4: but now we see data kind of coming in. And uh, then uh, two years later, we transitioned to Lelly robots. And uh, more reliable data were coming in, more measurements coming in, and uh, different management systems, different management softwares and then we can actually see the uh, impact that that brings into the cows as we can start using that data and uh, you know we we start looking at what metrics in production can we actually use and can we actually gain from and um, you know we started probably 20 years ago we were making a kilo of uh, butterfat per cow Uh, and then in the parlor towards the robot transition you know you get up to 1.3 and now you get up to 1.6 a few years later and we say well these are great metrics but are we using uh the right metrics are we measuring the right things to be the most efficient and so that's our challenge i guess as we go forward or what metrics can we capitalize on to improve uh and to make more money and in this case and uh, one of the things i'm going to talk about today is obviously um, improving the echo feed or the dry matter efficiency uh, of the genetics or the feed saved.
0: And I believe that these are
4: going to contribute uh, to the results of the the profitability of our farm. Um, And so just uh, one of the things, one of the aspects that we have to really look at or we focused on in the last number of years, uh, we're really uh, in tune on our feeding objectives. Uh, one, we've, we've managed to, um, or we, not that we managed, but we became uh, partners with um, a lab and uh, called fermentrix and where the objective really is to uh, uh, look at the feed and find out what can the bugs do and start looking at things from a qualitative instead of always just a quantitative. Uh, factor and really look at the digestibility effects the synergistic effects of different feeds and then that really has an impact on okay how are we going to feed our cows what are we going to grow and then in the last year we built a feed center where we can use our own commodities uh, buy in commodities in bulk so obviously a bulk choice cuts your feed costs uh, which brings in more profitability but the other thing that is also done is given us a certain nimbleness to be uh, flexible if we don't like the feed if cows don't react, uh, then we can we can change things up an awful lot faster, and another management decision that we've had uh, in the feeding side lately is uh, going to a corn silage diet, kind of by accident uh, two years ago, all the alfalfa in the spring just wasn't looking too too healthy, and uh, we just kind of waited it out and kind of hoped and hoped and hoped, and uh, sure enough, it was all dead so uh, we had already flirted with a corn silage diet for quite a while, and uh, then it was kind of uh, thrown upon us uh, really quickly. So we switched to a corn silage diet, uh, feeding mostly BMR um, and some conventional. So then we get to, to, to look at digestibilities and play with uh, different digestibilities throughout the year and, and feed our, uh, change our rates a lot more. And uh, as we're doing all of this, we're using uh, the TMR tracker program. And we'd had that for many, many years and uh, which is kind of rare for a small farm, but also difficult for a small farm um, because we're measuring dry matter uh, efficiencies on there. But we also have to be quite aware um, as we go forward that uh, even though absolutely everything is measured, uh, sometimes people push the buttons at the wrong time, sometimes, uh, you know, we've had it before where the 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 numbers were off the charts and and uh you're looking at it and you're saying what on earth is going on here these numbers are crazy well okay there's 10 dry cows in with the dairy group uh that nobody told me about because they got loose and somebody forgot to tell us that there's 10 cows floating in there and you know if it was in a parlor you'd pick that up pretty quick but in a robot scenario they just get booted out as as they're not eligible so um managing that data has been um Difficult to always have uh, pure information on on kind of a dynamic farm that's always moving. And so from a feeding standpoint going forward, uh, one of the biggest things that we look at for uh, metrics is is our land use and managing uh, the manure, managing nutrient management plans, um, you know, land base. And then the other thing, too, is just the sheer volume requirements, which require storage as well. And don't forget if you got uh, volume in, it has to go out somewhere. So you also have the spreading requirements. So you got more volume to spread and uh, the costs and the windows in which to do it uh, that are associated with that. I and mean, Sometimes uh, you just have fields that just are not ready and, and it's most not the most ideal time to get out there and spread. So um, there's a lot of cost associated with those volumes. So that's really why we're looking at efficiencies for, for the dry matter. Use and the other things too is the uh, cost of concentrate, uh, cost of concentrates, as well as the uh, crazy global economy in which we live. Because um, you know where soybeans and corn are going these days is kind of crazy. So if you haven't booked it, or if you're thinking about how will we do this next year or the year after, um, at least if we have to use less of it, or can get the most out of what we're using. that, that's really one of our, our goals going forward is how are we gonna how are we gonna maximize those uh, those uh, aspects and then coming into more of a breeding objective uh, side of things uh, which really ties in uh, we've used mating programs from different AI companies uh, since we've been in a tie stall and like I said before we've gone towards more mid size animals uh, we've looked at health and longevity traits and uh, keeping those animals. You know in the barn keeping them bred uh you know the dprs the mastitis levels and everything like that that all ties in and we can see the progression so we we do have a, a confidence in the genomics on that and the in the uh, genetic side you know bringing us better and better cows and our ultimate objective is always to have a cow um that we never see uh especially in a robot because uh you know it's nice to know oh she's bred oh she's in calf uh oh she's going dry and, oh that was easy and you know she's not a cow who's hobbling so that's that's really our target is a cow who never that you re- never really see uh, from a mating program and uh, uh, we've, we've used that since tie stalls and we've had different programs from different companies and you know we've been looking for those mid-sized animals we've been looking for those animals with the health traits uh, the longevity traits and ultimately targeting uh, the animals that um, you never see so you know that they're gonna get bred back very easily that they're gonna uh, you know they get to dry cows and you got to move them and it's like oh you're still here oh that's really cool your production was good and so animals that just never give you the trouble that they're walking well and uh, do it year after year and and deliver the goods the milk and the components Um, and so we've implemented complete genomic testing of all of our calves for the last number of years uh, which now includes the EcoFeed. And we're starting to look at that more and more and it's really nice to see some of the numbers coming in And you got a lot of heifers at 110 and 112. It's like, okay, we're going to track these animals and see uh, just what they do. Um, the challenge that we do have, having grown so much over the last number of years, uh, kind of in different shots and increments is that we've had a lot of purchased animals. And that kind of interferes in a certain sense with our genetic vision, and we have to manage around them because sometimes we do need those numbers breeding back to have the number of calves. And other times, um, you know, we'll just breed them off to a beef, uh, get them into an Angus. Um, and so that's kind of been a distraction perhaps in our, in our, in our going forward with our breeding objectives. Uh, we've began to use um, chromosomal mating in the last little while, uh, basing it on a net merit base. Um, and really trying to add some uh, component weight to, and especially fat to that. Uh, being in, uh, we're not in a fluid market, we're really in a component market in Canada. And uh, there are ratios that are very critical. So we just try and get as much uh, emphasis as we can on that. And uh, what we're seeing is a nice uniformity in the genomic results. And that's pretty impressive uh, on, on a small herd. So we're, we're just kind of enjoying where that's going and also enjoying the direction for the ecofeed results that are coming back. I guess we've been using that probably for a couple years now, since probably about the beginning of 2018, uh, starting with bulls like charismatic and detour. Uh, A lot of the high ones coming out lately are are rebels. So really interested to see uh, when they calve in, uh, just what kind of animals that they turn into. And so it's kind of a challenge now to, to really read it, to learn how to use it. Uh, and how to include it into our mating program and put the appropriate weighting on it. Um, well, that's probably one of our challenges kind of going forward, is you know, as within any new technology, is where is it going to fit? How are we going to do it right? And how are we going to measure it? Um, and uh, that's a bit of our challenge. Uh, going forward, um, we do really want to keep on measuring the right metrics. Uh, looking at cow data, the robots are really bringing that. Uh, interesting data to us that we can that we can use, um, especially on the fat and the protein. So uh, not only is it just uh, kilos of milk production, then we can actually look at the kilos of components. And so we ask ourselves questions like, is the dry matter efficiency the right metric to be looking at? Uh, we know that it's an indicator of past decisions bringing us to where we are today. Um, but it's a tough measure to always it's a tough to, to always get that measure right all the time and, and not screw it up like i mentioned before um but it's definitely something that we have to keep working on how do we how do we measure it more efficiently so it's probably one of the right things right metrics that we want to use and then you know one of the other things we use up here especially in canada is our kilos of butterfat per cow and is that the right thing to be looking at and i'm kind of leaning back to income over feed costs but trying to bring that back into a uh, um, per, per kilo of component, I guess you could say, or per kilo of fat. And, you know, we ask questions like, can we map out the dry matter, uh, the kilos of dry matter over the kilos of fat produced? And, you know, what tools are we going to use? What programs? How are we going to really get down to the nuts and bolts of it? And then I want to start looking at, you know, what's the impact of individuals and outliers uh, into, you know, on that whole dry matter efficiency equation? How do we get there? Um and you know maybe that's where the robot side of things come in. Uh but TMRs are kind of more complicated. Uh you know, everybody's being fed as a whole. And you know, will we get to the point where we can cull or purchase based on um these metrics on you know on the feed saved or the eco feed? Well can we cull, can we purchase um you know on that and you know should we be culling or uh, you know and, and it just really relates to how are we gonna Get right down to the full nuts and bolts of per cow, uh, the value per cow, and the income over feed cost per cow as opposed to to groups of cows. So uh, perhaps a headache for another day, but it's definitely on our radar, and and, uh, that's where we want to go. And are we feeding the right uh, ration to maximize the feed efficiency traits? It's another question that I have as a dairy farmer. Uh, You know, when we look at pool rates and passage rates, and when we talk about starch levels and and fermentability and protein levels, um, do they have an impact on any of these traits? And, you know, am I feeding to maximize um, those genetic traits? Those are huge questions that we have uh, kind of going forward as we look at this. And so it's one thing to set the herd up uh, genetically, but it's also another uh, thing to make sure that, you know, we're maximizing... Uh, the use of that trait as we go forward, and and, and minimizing the feed cost as well. Um, and you know, conversely, is my ration antagonizing these traits, which I certainly would hope not. Um, so you know, some of the questions that we would have, kind of at uh, at the barn level, I suppose you could say. Um, and you know, it's just a question of integration and weighing of the traits into all of these mating programs as well. So um, lots of exciting stuff to come, but we want to make sure that we turn it right into, um, uh, just turn it right back into efficiencies and uh, profitability for us and, uh, you know, keep the bank happy. And uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Kim. Uh, We're going to move into the question part of our panel uh, on today's BOVA News. So I want to go back and ask, uh, first of all, let's start out with you, Kent. Uh, How will AI companies or genomic providers offer the trait?
2: Uh, Well, I'm neither of those, but I can try to take a a shot at it. I mean, I think, um, you know, it'll be available as a standalone trait, but I really think it should be used as part of the overall index. We don't wanna do single straight selection for feed saved or any other trait, um, but rather to to use it as part of net merit. Now it won't obviously be in there till next next sire summary, but I think uh, that's one way. I think the other way that's you know certainly sensible for um, producers who wanna put more emphasis on this would be to, to avoid the extremes. And by that, I mean the extreme inefficient animals um, for feed save, but I don't think they should get, you know, too carried away and, and try to do anything remotely close to single trait selection for it, because it's just one of the many tools we have to select for healthy and productive and profitable cows.
0: Well, and along those lines, how much progress could, a could a producer expect to see or over what period of time do you see this happening?
2: You know, I don't have a perfect crystal ball. I think, you know, if we look at the traits in our, you know, one way that we measure progress is by the base changes every five years, right? And for the traits that we really push, uh, we tend and have good data on, we tend to change by about a standard deviation, sometimes a little more over that period of time for those that get less emphasis we're on the lower end. I think here, this is is one that will get a lot of emphasis, but also has poor reliability. So... um, you know, offhand, if the standard deviation is 109 pounds, um, you know, for feed saved, uh, for genetic standard deviation, I, I don't think we'll make that much on a, every five-year basis. But, you know, quarter to half that much. So, you're talking, you know, 5, 10 pounds a year per cow, which is, is a lot genetically because it's cumulative. It adds up over time. And, and as we get more data and, and some, do some of the things that Juan is talking about also with growing heifers, I think that number goes up. And, and also partnering with international folks and getting more reliabilities, the number will go up even more, right? So I think, I think uh, um, you know, we'll, we'll see, but, but uh, I think we're in a position to make some good progress.
0: Uh, along those lines, what's the best way for a dairy producer to apply this new information to help them make breeding decisions? in terms of feed efficiency.
3: Yeah, taking a little bit of what Ken was saying, I think that the progress is gonna be dependent and highly dependent on how much emphasis an individual farmer places on the trade, right? And and on the importance of selecting for it. Um, With the feed safe is being included into the net merit basis, although you can look at the individual trade on feed safe, you can look at the individual trade on eco feed. And then one can make a, a, a more Precise decision on how how much progress needs to be made at a point of 0.21, the the, the progress can be quite significant, quite fast, right? It's, it's this is not going to be a slow progress, um, but again, it depends on the emphasis that you place and the, and the reliability of the bulls you choose to to select, um, <clears throat> and whether you're going to go look and select and keep the heifers back. Also, that have a higher reliability and have a higher score. Um, that's that's uh, it's just down to an individual breeder's um, decision-making process.
0: And along those lines, Tim, you mentioned that you've been using EcoFeed for a couple of years. What made you start using it?
4: Um, we're we're early adopters, um, for for one for one thing, and uh, just just because we had run the TMR tracker program, just because of the relationship that we do have uh, partnering up with labs and just, just asking some of those tough questions and and saying, you know, how can we get more efficient and, you know, how can we lower the cost? And, you know, if this is something that'll bring profitability uh, do I believe it's a silver bullet? Absolutely not. I don't think there's any silver bullets for for us out here as farmers today. Um, But is it a tool in the toolbox? Uh, Absolutely. And, uh, Somebody has to start the ball rolling and, uh, you know, I think if we can make uh, progress over the next five to ten years, uh, I'd rather be the first to get to the goalpost.
0: You mentioned too that you have some heifers that are coming back. You have, you're have you seeing some 110s, 112s. Have you seen any benefits yet or any that you've been able to measure on your farm?
4: No, well, these are heifers that are probably, uh, you know, four to six months old so far now. So. Um, there's, there's no, I just don't have the facilities or, or the, the methods to, to record, uh, you know, will we be able to look at feed efficiencies with the tracker uh, when these animals calve in and there's enough of them or, or look at the whole pool of the herd? Um, you know, on, on, on the farm level, we're, you know, we're not scientific enough really to get there because you're going to, you're going to move uh, that metric but you're also going to go forward with your feed, uh, your efficiencies on your feed, your digestibilities are going to get better. You know, technically they should. And uh, so there's so many that we we really have to rely on on the researchers for a lot of stuff to to, to be able to concretely measure. Mm -hmm.
0: Joel, I want to go to you for a minute here. So feed efficiency obviously is difficult to measure on a dairy operation. How will producers know if they're making progress? Do you suggest monthly feed efficiency tracking? What, what is the best the best method that you recommend?
1: That's a good question. Um I think it's I think it's consistent with what all the other speakers, Kent, Juan, and Tim, talked about. If if you've got a a farmer or a producer that has this keen interest um, and they adopt the whole process of feed efficiency measurement, I think that's the first step. They've got to do that first in order to, to know whether they're gonna get a return on investment for the, the feed technology is an example. And, and I know in our business, somebody adopts a solution, we wanna know if they got a return on investment also. Um, and so I, I think, yes, ideally you'd wanna do it at least monthly groups of cows are probably going to be most practical on most of our larger commercial operations. Now, that being said, as we move t- forward in time to one's uh, 2050 target, uh, we're going to have more technology on these dairy. You're going to see more robotics, uh, you're going to see more large dairies in robotic parlors that can measure some of this information. We may look at dairy a little different feed efficiency wise where we're looking at, for instance, uh, purchased feed efficiency costs. So instead of the total diet, they're looking at milk production versus the purchased feed component that they'll be fed at the robot. Um, So in general, I think, yeah, I think you're going to have, you got to start by just doing the basics as I described earlier on. Once we get that nailed down, they've got it to a precise, you know, there's all the bugs out of the system. have an interest like Tim in doing the eco feed uh, technology, it'd be pretty simple at that point. You'd be able to tag the cows that came through on the eco feed system and if you get a higher proportion of animals that have that technology implemented, you should see all else constant uh, within a forage year obviously, you should see incremental bumps in feed efficiency just to do the technology. And I I agree with Juan, it should be with a heritability that high, it should be pretty rapid. So from, a, from an on-farm perspective, you know, just measuring feed efficiency, uh, you add this technology on top of it, you'll be able to, you should be able to see if we eliminate those human errors on farm and get the variation down, you should be able to see the, uh, the result of the technology being used.
0: So do you see us getting down to an individual cow basis?
1: Uh, I will never say never, but I will say realistically, if I, I do a lot of field research, Um, I could probably name on one hand a number of dairies in the eastern and central time zones that actually do feed efficiency good enough to do really good field research. So that being said, uh, conventional dairies with the setups they have now would be very difficult. There are dairies that say they have individual cow numbers, but really what they're doing is they're taking pen numbers divided by the number of cows. They assume they all eat the same and they all melt the same just because they're in that group. That's not the case. Um, but that being, that, that, that consideration of robotics, I have two large dairies I work with, very large uh, robotic dairies. They can get at those numbers. It takes time and you have to have a, a person like Tim who's analytical minded, that takes the time, that understands that the data is gonna make them money. Um, so I, I won't ever say never. Um, I'm 54 years old, it may not happen in my career, but it'll probably happen in the next generation.
0: And along the lines, you talked a lot about weighbacks, because it's an important part, part of understanding how much cows are eating. How accurate does that need to be? Can producers start out, can we count buckets, for example, and occasionally weigh one, or what's, what's the best on-farm method to get started on this?
1: Yeah, I, again, it's, it, uh, ideally we'd like to see them weighing each day. Um, it's probably not gonna happen. Uh, I've got I've got farms that actually have taken buckets of refusals and they will uh, get the average weight That works as long as you're also taking a dry matter sample of that because I could tell you if you're doing it weekly or monthly the dry matter of those refusals is going to differ so much that a bucket that's 200 pounds today could be 250 next week could be 400 to follow so um, if they want to do that, then they also have to take dry matters of their refusals no differently than we'd ask them to take dry matters of their feedstuffs to get a more accurate number. But you know, again, you you heard about the echo feed development and lawn, how how detailed they were at going after these cows to get their individual body weights and what they ate and what they produced. Um, the more rigor they put into it, the better, the better ROI for the time they're gonna get, I guess is the best advice.
0: So along those lines. One, uh, what role will, do you think that management factors such as nutrition or feeding management really, what do they have in the expression of this trait in your book?
3: It's the golden key, right? The genetics is only a small part of the, a part of the equation, a very important part of the equation. but to express the genetics, you've got to control the environment and controlling the environment simply means putting together the best feed, the best, the best mix, best of everything. So nutrition and, and, and nutritional sources are fundamental to the expression of the genetics, and also the, the individual management of the animal, the facilities, you know, and many other factors. Um, but we see the same thing with every single genetic trait that we select for. It's not individually to feed conversion, feed efficiencies to every trait. I, I was I was listening, and just not to divert. I was going to mention um, that friend of mine with the beef cow herd when we started. We did feed selection for feed efficiency selection for him for about 12 years, 10 years, 10 to 12 years. He was in a very, very unique program and actually halfway through collecting data for him is when I became so in love with feed conversion and feed efficiency. He started with an average average population of beef cattle that started measuring feed, feed conversion and average daily gain on those animals. And he would bring in literally groups of about 500 heifers Um, that will get tested, and about 500 bulls that will get tested. So he would test about a 1,000 animals a year. Out of the 500 heifers, and this is an extreme example, he would choose the top 40, 30 to 50 heifers as the donors for the next generation. He would only breed them to the top bulls that got measured. So, And he did this for about a period of 10 years. During that period of 10 years, I saw his average, his feed conversion go from the original group came in, about 12 and a half pounds on a set basis to a pound of gain, 12 and a half pounds of feed to a pound of gain, down to about 7.8. It, it, it was amazing what I saw, it, and I saw it happen right in front of my own eyes over a period of 10 years. I, and after, you know, I saw the progression, group by group by group, um, I just couldn't believe it. He would pick, like I said, out of the top 500 heifers, he would just keep the top 30, 50 heifers. That's what he would do. Make embryos out of to make the next generation of 500 heifers. And he just kept on doing it. And he was almost single trait selected in a way. Yeah, he was measuring average daily gain and feed conversion, and he had rebuy measurements, and he had marbling, and he had other traits. But his heaviest emphasis was on feed conversion. He, he just literally became infatuated. And, you know, I did eventually as, as well on sing, almost single <laughs> trait selected. And I, the change that I saw in a very short period of time was unbelievable.
0: Kent, do you have anything to add? Management factors that affect the expression of the trait?
2: No, I think uh, I wouldn't say I wouldn't add to that. I don't think, but I, I guess what I would add, and, and Joel got into some of this, is you know the genetics is one part of it, right? So you know breeding your way to better feed efficiency is is one piece of the puzzle, but there's a whole lot. Uh, else that goes into that puzzle from, you know, harvesting, feed, storage, delivery, I mean, all of those sorts of things. So don't forget that part because that has immediate returns. Genetics has long-term returns and they build over time. So both are great, but, but don't, don't ignore the management part of it.
0: And Joel, how do you think nutritionists should best handle this new information and all this data?
1: You know, just to build on what Kent was saying, I I, I kind of use the analogy, this is like an investment portfolio. When you go to a financial advisor, they want you to have a combination of short-term and long-term investments. You know, immediately on the dairy, a high percentage of the feed efficiency uh, calculation is gonna be driven by forage quality, management of of the dairy feed center, uh, the, 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 the quality of the feed, the quality of the waybacks, the feed ingredients we talked about. Um, That's the short-term stuff. They got to get that nailed down and and really get in tune with that to to really be able to see the investment long-term in this this new technology. Um, I think it's going to be just like Tim mentioned, the the rapid adopters are going to be the folks that are already doing what what we're talking about. They're already doing it. They're good at it. They've got it nailed down and they're looking for the next thing. Uh, You look at environment versus genetics, Juan and I both had a genetics teacher back in the day at Ohio State. And uh, Dr. Fetchheimer always said that uh, it came down to, he hated saying it because he didn't like the word management, but management accounts for over 60% of it and genetics accounts for the rest. And uh, the bottom line is that the time it takes to reach that genetic result. dairymen are impatient nowadays, so they've got to have these short-term gains And you've got to build it that this is the platform. That's the foundation. You get that figured out, you'll be able to see this net result. And it'll come quick. Like Juan mentioned the, with a heritability that high, it will come quick. Um, But they have to be dedicated to doing this stuff, just the normal everyday stuff they should be doing to measure feed efficiency.
0: Tim. Are you, you, what are you using right now? Are you using your robots to measure efficiency at all? Um,
4: Somewhat, Um, we're we're new enough to the robots and um, I guess it's always a question for the farmer to find the uh, software platform that's gonna work for you. And what we find with uh, T4C is that we have to do a lot of exporting to the Excel. So uh, when you have too many things to do in your day, and you just don't have that data analysis background, you just end up with too much uh, to do. So what we're trying to do is find stuff that's gonna simplify our, our lives. And you know we're working with a feed supplier who can come in and pull data off of multiple uh, software sources. And we're, we're asking them to do the work for us because they have the efficiency and the tools to do it. So day-to-day, I mean, we're looking in and, and, and we're doing um, you know the, the data that's gonna help us manage the day-to-day. Uh, probably on a monthly basis, we're pulling out fat levels of of different cows. Uh, fat being in Canada right now, one of the most important things, more than production, and um, you know uh, the TMR tracker is running in the background all the time, and and we're always looking at our efficiencies. Um, but it, it's it's a once a month type of thing, even on the TMR tracker. It's it's just you have to make sure that all the data in is accurate so that the data coming out of it is going to be accurate because uh, it'll, it'll drive you crazy. Otherwise you could you could be either really happy for no reason or very, very discouraged for, uh, you know, it could go both ways. So, um, you know, you have to have good consultants around and uh, that, that's what we do. And uh, in our case, uh, we've got a couple, couple people on the feed side who really kind of drill down and look and, and grill us. Uh, um, sometimes when you're too close to the situation too, you can't see it. So you need that outside help. So, um, you know definitely hats off to all of the people who uh, keep us thinking and on our toes uh, as producers.
0: Agreed, it's always the power of the team. Uh, Kent, how will feed save reliability improve over time? Do you see it improving? How- yeah,
2: yeah. As I mentioned, I think there are kind of three ways. One would be, um, well, then the, the quickest way would be uh, international partnerships, right? Um, we do that with a lot of other traits, and and we There are a number of other countries working on this as well. Um, So I think we could increase the reference population that way. I think um, working, you know, we're continuing to measure more and more cows every year. So we're adding within the U.S. here, 750 cows a year, roughly. Uh, That will help. And uh, incorporating data from the heifer period, as Juan talked about, helps. And then, you know, long term, I think there are, Technologies that we can use—I th- I think some have potential, some I'm more skeptical of—for um, getting at uh, indirect predictions of individual animal intakes, and they—they they range from, you know, from uh, 3D cameras to uh, wearable sensors, uh, quite a few other options as well. Some work better than others. Still, at the end of the day, it's hard to imagine that we won't have to actually, you know, do waybacks. But. Um, there's certainly potential. Thanks.
0: So I'd like to open it up now to everyone on the panel uh, to give you a second to ask each other questions. Uh, And I'm going to assume maybe Tim, you probably have some for the group as well, but does anyone have questions for each other?
4: Well, one of my questions I suppose that I have, and I alluded to it earlier is really, how does the ration influence genetics um, or does it, You know, I've looked at some of the, uh, uh, you know, my nutritionist and I kind of kicked it around before we got talking today. And he said, you know, like starch levels, how, how are they playing on stuff? So what can we do as producers to kind of maximize the use of, of these traits or, or make sure we're not shooting ourselves in the foot, or maybe we should just keep doing what we're doing.
2: You know, uh, I can take a crack at it. I think from a genetics, well, what we see broadly across you know, many diets, the, the, more, um, the better the diet by what definition you use, I can let Joel or somebody else uh, clarify what that exactly means, the more the genetic potential is expressed, right? And so if you look at a, a situation where the environment is limiting or the ration is limiting, uh, you won't necessarily have the animals rank differently, but they may a little bit. But mostly what you'll see is the differences between animals are compressed. And as as you improve and ratchet up your, your management and your nutrition, then those genetically superior animals go further and further above the rest, right? So you get your, uh, you don't necessarily change the ranking, but you definitely change the return on investment quite dramatically.
0: Anyone have anything to add?
1: No, I, I think Kent's exactly right. It's, uh... I kind of look at it this way: the animal, the animal's give, been given a genetic deck of cards to deal with when it hits the ground, and it's our job to not manage away the advantage that we've given her through breeding. Um, so whether that's sports quality, housing, overcrowding, heat abatement, uh, all that stuff can either enhance a genetic uh, potential for an animal or depress the genetic potential for the animal. Um, So to your point, Tim, yeah, my personal opinion, uh, um, I think as time goes on, you're going to have more technologies, more genetic advantages to take advantage of. But at the end of the day, we still have to do the basic stuff at the dairy. And that's why I made the comment earlier that the people that are going to jump on this technology right out of the gate in my mind are going to be the people that are already doing, you know, forage management. They're measuring their refusals. They may not have it accurately done but they're at least precise for their farm. Um, They're they're doing things uh, using TMR tracker. Unfortunately data, you hit on it Tim, data aggregation is one of the biggest challenges that we see on these dairies. You've got so much data being collected from multiple sources and sometimes you need data from three or four different sources to come up with a calculation. Um, That to me is going to be the next sweet spot. If we can come up with the uh, I don't know what the term would be, but something that would aggregate all this data. And so we wouldn't have to put it into the super Excel spreadsheet like you and I and everybody else has been doing. Um, that would be great. It would be great. And it would help this whole conversation take off really quick.
3: I think it's really interesting. Um, there's known data out there, at least on the beef side, that. Higher grain diets lead to a better feed conversion on a per pound of feed-as-fed basis, right? Uh, so in the case of finishing steers, for example, those diets are pretty heavy on corn, and they convert a lot better than when it's a higher rougher diet. Um, so obviously with dairy cattle, we got to be careful as to how high of a grain diet that we, we place on those animals or how hard we push them. or we start getting into a bunch of other problems of, of acidosis, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a a fine balance that we all have to deal with as to how these animals got to be fed and how hard can you push them in order to be able to express those genetics. Great point,
0: Juan. Any other questions for each other? Okay. Well, uh, my sincere thanks to Joel, Kent, Juan and Tim for taking the time today. And thank you to all of you for taking uh, your time listening to this webinar. Uh, It's quite clear that uh, improving feed efficiency is really important to enhancing the profitability on farms today. And we all know that there's management practices to enhance feed efficiency, but improvements in genetics play a pretty significant role as well. So um, thanks again for your time and tuning in to another edition of Boba News.